kids, it's time for bingo. So get your little sheet out if you got one of those in your activity packet. And remember, kids, we're trying to teach the adults how to say amen in church. So if you get bingo, just say amen. I don't care when it is, just say amen, okay? And, and then, adults, if you get inspired along the way, you can say amen too, okay? Is that a deal? I want to just take a minute and talk to our online audience. I know that uh, there are people joining us. Maybe you're in your living room or maybe you're sitting in a coffee shop somewhere, but I just want to welcome you to our worship service. We're so glad that you have joined us today. I want to just make you aware of what's coming next Sunday on June the 28th. We're going to have communion together as a congregation, and I know we're going to have elements for everybody who's here at the in-person gathering but for those of you who join us online each week, we want to encourage you to participate in communion with us as well. So sometime over this next week, you can go to the store, pick up some grape juice and some bread or some crackers, and just have the elements ready for whoever's there with you in your home uh, when we celebrate communion next Sunday. We'll bless the elements during the service, and then we'll give instructions on how you are to partake of those elements so that we can celebrate together both here in this room and with you who are joining us online. So we want to encourage you uh, to prepare for that over this next week. Now, uh, this Sunday, uh, we are in week three of a series uh, that we're calling What Kind of Church? And we're asking this question because we want to root our beliefs and our, our doctrine and our understanding of the church firmly in the truths of Scripture. And so we have been saying throughout this series that church is not a place, it's not an event, it is a community of people. And then we've been just simply asking, what are some of the characteristics about this community that we need to understand and know so that it can shape the way we think and behave within this community of faith? And so we've said that the, this community is missional, right? Because God has a mission, and so Jesus created a community to carry out his mission within the world. And then last week we said that this is a gospel community, and that we must always be moving in two directions. We're sent out to share the gospel with people in our relational network. And we're called to invite people into the community of faith where they can see Christians living their lives and living out their faith. And hear the gospel on a repeated basis. Because we said as a gospel community, we want everybody in our county to have repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to talk to you just for a few minutes about what it means to be a discipling community. And I know that we've already prayed, but I want to pray again. I don't think we can ever pray too much in church. So we're going to pray one more time and ask God to speak to us this morning. So let's pray. Father, we are here in this place because you have invited us as your community, as your church, to gather together. And so whether we're here in this room or whether we're tuning in online, we are gathered together as your people and you are here in our midst. And now as we turn our attention to your word, would you open our hearts and our minds, open our ears and our souls so that we can hear and receive your word. Let it be planted deep inside of us. Let it grow and sprout and mature and produce fruit for your name and for your honor. 
God, we give ourselves to you today. And even before we know all that you're going to say to us in these moments, we as your people say, speak, Lord, for we are listening and we are committed to obey. So we give these moments to you now and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been a Christian for three decades Almost three decades exactly, actually. And for the first decade or so, maybe a little bit longer than that, my entire Christian faith was shaped and formed by two images. Images that were incomplete at best, and at worst were just flat out incorrect. The first image is that of a gravestone. You see, when I grew up, I grew up in church, and I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed, and, and as it was proclaimed to me, I got this idea that the, the, the primary thing Christian faith was concerned about was what happens after you die. Now, this was taught to me in my earliest days by my parents, God bless them, they taught me a horrible, terrifying bedtime prayer. Now, before I share this prayer with you, if you find yourself being a parent who taught your kids this prayer, repent after I share this, and then you might want to set aside some money to pay for therapy for your kids, because they might need it, okay? And if you're a parent right now, and you're teaching your kids this prayer, find a new one. Because this is a scary prayer to teach kids. Every night, my parents would take me into my bedroom. They, we would kneel down next to my bed, and then they would lead me in this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. It's a good prayer up to that point. Then it's a horrifying turn in the next line. If I should die before I wake... I pray the Lord my soul to take. And then my parents would turn the lights out and shut the door. And leave me all alone as a little kid thinking there might be a boogeyman under the bed or monsters in the closet. And that this could be the night that I would meet my demise. Now that was pretty scary as a kid. It was even more scary though to think about the fact that I couldn't ever be quite sure that God would welcome me. Because every single night I had to ask God to accept me again. And I was never quite sure that I was in. Now, that kind of idea of the gospel started to take root in my life pretty early on. And it was reinforced by children's workers and youth leaders throughout my growing up years. They said there were two really important questions that everybody needs to know how to answer. If you were to die today, do you know where you would spend eternity? And if you did die today and you found yourself standing before God, what would you tell him so that he would let you in as if your right answer was going to gain you entrance? Now, my children's workers and youth leaders, they loved us. They were well-intentioned and they wanted us to believe in Jesus. They wanted us to accept him and follow him with our lives. They, they really wanted the best for us. But, but all of their teaching and all of their gospel proclaiming led me to believe that Christianity is primarily about what happens after you die. So when I accepted Jesus as a young teenage boy, uh, really a preteen, uh, I was just a little bit away from my 13th birthday, and, and I accepted him, I, another image kind of took root in my life, and it was faith as a finish line. 
You see, the reality is, is that when, when you think of Christianity as being primarily about settling your eternal destination, then when you accept Jesus, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your journey of faith is not beginning, it's over. You've now arrived. Right? If you had a problem before you met Jesus, the problem being that you were lost in your sins, and, and because you're lost in your sins, if you were to die, you wouldn't spend eternity in heaven. You'd spend it in another place with lots of fire. Right? Then if you believe in Jesus and your sins are forgiven and you're on your way to heaven, you're in. The journey to faith is not starting. It's over. You've crossed the finish line. Now, this leads to a faith that's inherently passive. Right? People come to faith in Jesus. They're on their way to heaven. And, and now it's just a matter of kind of waiting. Right? And, and churches all across North America are filled with people who are kind of just waiting. Because this was the gospel we proclaimed. Because when you're in a waiting room, I mean, it's never fun to be in a waiting room. But when you're in a waiting room, like, you want it to be comfortable. You want it to have the best reading material that you like. You want it to have the TV that you like to watch while you're sitting in the waiting room. Because in a waiting room, you just want to be at least comfortable. Right? And so churches all across North America are filled with people whose primary concern about church is comfort. Is this the kind of church I like? Does it suit my preferences? Does it meet my needs? Because after all, I'm just waiting for heaven anyway. I at least want to be comfortable while I'm waiting. These two images really shaped and dominated my understanding of the faith for my whole first decade as a Christian. But then I started reading the Gospels. There's an idea that we might actually look and see what Jesus says about the gospel. I started reading the gospels, and as I did, things started to, to kind of shift in my perspective. Uh, I started asking the question, what if? Right? Like, what if Jesus didn't just come to get people to believe in him? What if he actually came because he wanted people to engage in an active journey of discipleship where they actually become like him? What if instead of just getting a bunch of people to be forgiven of their sins, waiting to go to heaven someday, what if Jesus actually came to enter into a person's life and rewire everything about them so that they actually live in an entirely different way on this earth? What if Jesus didn't just come to evacuate a bunch of people from earth to heaven? What if Jesus came to get the life of heaven into this earth? See, it kind of flips things around. And as I started reading the Gospels, what I discovered is Jesus doesn't say, come follow me and I'll forgive your sins. He doesn't ever say that. Not a single place. He doesn't even say, follow me and I'll take you to heaven. He doesn't say that either. Not in a single place. Now, I want to be real clear here because people will leave here saying I said something that I didn't say that Jesus doesn't forgive sins and that there's no such place as heaven. I didn't say either one of those things. Jesus does forgive our sins. He does make us right with God. And our belief in Jesus, our relationship with Jesus, has eternal ramifications. If you die from this life and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you will spend an eternity separated from God. 
But if you do have a relationship with God and you pass from this life, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I want to be very, very clear. Jesus forgives sins, and there really is a place called heaven. And I want every single one of you to be there. I just want to be real clear about that. But I also want to be real clear that Jesus didn't try to sell his gospel with forgiveness or with a mansion over the hilltop. Jesus didn't feel like his gospel needed to kind of sweeten the deal. Jesus just said, follow me. The implication is he's worth following. Regardless of what you're going to get out of the deal, he's worth following because he's God. Right? So, so we, don't, we don't follow Jesus because our sins get forgiven. We don't follow Jesus because we're going to get a mansion over the hilltop or we're going to get to walk on streets of gold. Those are kind of just like side benefits. We follow Jesus because Jesus Christ is Lord and he has asked us to follow him. That would have been a great place. We're learning. We're learning. We'll get the hang of it. So, that just got me thinking, if, if we don't understand the gospel of Jesus, which we talked a little bit about last week, then maybe we might miss out on being a, a discipling community because we didn't realize that the game is not getting into heaven. The game is becoming like Jesus. Right? It's not about making it somewhere when we die. It's about following Jesus here and now and becoming like him. So today I want to talk to us just for a few minutes about what it means to be a discipling community. You've already heard the scripture passages read. In Mark chapter 1, perhaps one of the clearest representations of Jesus' gospel, he begins his public ministry by saying, I've got good news. And the good news isn't about forgiveness of sins, and it's not about making it into heaven. The good news is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as he says in the book of Matthew, has come near. It is now in this earth. It is the inbreaking of God's kingdom to the place where we live our lives day in and day out. It's right here. And you can simply repent, which means to turn around from the direction you've been going, and you can walk right into God's kingdom. And you can live in God's kingdom, not just after you die, but right now. In fact, one of the verses that talks about in the New Testament about uh, when we believe in God, we get eternal life. John 3.16, right? We all know this verse. Uh, uh, hopefully we all know it. E even, even people who don't go to church hold this sign up at, at sporting events, right? John 3.16. Um, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life or everlasting life. That phrase in the original Greek doesn't mean life after die. It means the life of the ages. It literally means life that begins now that carries on into eternity. We don't start living the life of the kingdom after we die. We start living it right now when we believe in Jesus. So this is, this is the good news of Jesus. And then with this good news proclaimed, Jesus turns to some fishermen who happen to be nearby and he says, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. The NIV says, I will make you fishers of people. A little more all-encompassing, not just men, people. 
Everybody, every human being who's alive. Come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. I want us to think just for a few minutes about this invitation of Jesus. And in particular, I want us to to focus in on what Jesus is asking of us, what he is expecting of us as a discipling community. And there's two words that I want you to know. The first word is the word be. B-E. Not a bumblebee. B. B-E. And the second word is make. Be and make. These are the two key words from Jesus' invitation. Because he's inviting us into two different realities in the same invitation. Right? Come follow me. Jesus is inviting you first and foremost to be a disciple. Be a disciple. And the focus here is transformation. Right? Jesus is inviting us to a journey that transforms us. Siri is talking to me right now. She is defining words that I'm saying. You couldn't hear that on my watch, but Siri thought I needed to know a word, so she was telling me. So grateful for Siri. She's such a good friend. Um, So the focus here is on transformation. Jesus invites us into a journey of transformation, and here's why. Because a disciple is someone who signs up to learn from a master. Rabbis would come alongside of people in Jesus' day, and they would invite people to be their disciple. And in inviting them to be their disciple, it wasn't just come to a classroom and learn some stuff I want to teach you. It was live your life with me. I'm going to teach you some stuff with my words, but I'm also going to teach you some stuff with the way I live my life. And you're going to watch me, and you're going to learn from me. And the goal of this relationship was not to be able to pass a test by saying back what the teacher told you. The the way you passed the test was by becoming like the master. So that when people looked at your life, they would know who your master was. This is what discipleship means. It's a journey of transformation. Now, when I was a little kid, uh, my grandfather on my mom's side, uh, I called him Poppy, was a man that I looked up to. I admired him with all of my heart. I just thought he was a wonderful, wonderful man. Patient, peaceful, gentle, kind, full of joy, loved a good joke, loved the Lord deeply, And when we went to church on Sunday mornings, he always had a pack of chewy mints in his pocket that he would run his thumbnail halfway through the roll, and he would give me half, like, secretly so my mom wouldn't know. Just, like, right next to me, he would just kind of slide it over, and then he would take the other half, and by the end of the service, both of our halves were gone. We just ate them all. I love that man. One of the things that he loved was his garden. He loved to work in his garden. He had just a little garden in the back corner of his yard, and he loved to work in that garden. And when I was just a little, little kid, I'm not much bigger now, but, but when I was a little kid, uh, I would want to help him in the garden. So Every time we'd go to his house, I would run to the backyard. I'd kind of make my way through their mobile home and go out the back porch right to the back corner of their lot. I'd come right up to the edge of the grass and I would ask my, my poppy, can I help in the garden? 
Now, when I was real little, he very graciously and compassionately said, no, you can't help. Go along and play now. And I would go find something else to do. But I wanted to be in the garden with my grandfather. I still remember the summer when we got to my grandparents' house and I ran through their mobile home, out the back door of their screened-in porch, right to the edge of the grass. And when I got there, I yelled to my poppy, can I help in the garden today? And he said, yes. Now, I got to tell you, as a little kid, this was like excitement beyond excitement. I was so pumped. I was going to get to help my grandfather do something that he loved to do. But it was also kind of scary because I knew he loved that garden. And in that moment of him saying yes, I realized, even though I was very excited to help, I didn't have a clue of what to do next. And I thought to myself, I'm going to mess something up. I'm going I'm I'm to make his garden not what he wants it to be. And this is not going to go well. And he's never going to let me help again. And I kind of felt the weight of that. And then I had just one of the very few brilliant thoughts I've had in my lifetime. My grandfather knows everything about this garden. And if I just watch him and do everything that he does, I'm going to be okay. So that's exactly what I did. My mom and my grandmother were sitting in the screened-in porch by this time, and they observed that as I stepped off of the manicured lawn onto the tilled soil, that I was so closely watching my grandfather and following him that my little feet were stepping in the footprints that he was leaving behind in the soil. I was literally following in his footsteps. I was mimicking every move that he made, doing exactly what he was doing, because that's all I knew to do. Now, that for me is a powerful childhood memory, which has become a picture of what discipleship is. Let's just be honest. When Jesus invites us to follow him, we don't have a clue. We don't. We don't know all that this life's going to entail. We don't know all that Jesus is going to ask of us. We don't know how to live this life. But Jesus knows everything. And if we just lock our eyes on him and, and follow him and learn from him and do what he does, imitate him, we won't mess up. We won't go wrong. Which is why the author of the, Hebrew, of the book of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, so that you can actually run this course that's been set out for you. That's what discipleship's all about. It's about looking at Jesus and following him. And when we do that, we become different people. It's not just that our sins are forgiven and we can make it into heaven. No, it is about an active journey of becoming a different person along the way. That's what discipleship is. So if you have been walking with Jesus for a long, long time and you're not any different than when you started, you ought to check your walk. Because you ought to be different today than when you started. And it doesn't matter if you've been walking with Jesus for 10 days or 10 years or 100 years. You ought to keep looking more and more like Jesus the longer you go. You ought to become more gentle, right? That ought to be the measure. If you've been walking with Jesus for decades, you should be more gentle than anybody else in the church. More kind, more patient, more more peace-loving, more self-controlled. 
more faithful. Why? Because the Spirit of God has been working in your life for a longer period of time, producing His fruit in you. And Uni, I just want you to tell your dad that I got it right. It's not fruits, it's fruit. Please tell him that. The Spirit of God produces fruit in our lives the longer we walk with Him. And so the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we ought to look like Him. More gentle, more kind, more patient, more loving, more faithful. Let it be so for each and every one of us. When Paul writes about the discipleship journey in 2 Corinthians 5, he writes about kind of the two bookends of the Christian faith. In verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if any person is in Christ, he or she is a brand new creation. You get a fresh start, a clean slate, a brand new beginning. When you put your faith in Jesus, whatever has come before is washed away. And some of you need to hear this today because you walked into this room and you're not walking with Jesus and you've got a weight on your shoulders. It might be a weight of shame or guilt. It might be a weight of brokenness. You might be caught in patterns of sin or even an addiction that you can't seem to get out of and it's weighing you down. And maybe the people around you know all about it and maybe they don't. Maybe you've been able to keep it a secret. I just want to let you know whether people know or not, it doesn't matter. God knows and you know. And I just want you to know today that if you decide to follow Jesus in that moment, he will make you a brand new creation. And if you want me to explain how that works, I'm afraid I can't do it because it's a miracle of God. This is not science. It's not some formula. It is a miracle that God does when he takes a sinner who puts faith and trust in him and he enters their life through the Holy Spirit and he radically changes them and makes them brand new. I don't know how he does it. I just know that he does. Brand new creation. And some of you need to hear that today because you need to become a brand new creation. But, but the journey isn't becoming a brand new creation. That's not the finish line. It's the starting line for a life of transformation because in verse 21, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. What's the journey that God's taking us on from new creation to the righteousness of God? Now there are lots of reasons that I'm a Wesleyan but one of the primary reasons I am a Wesleyan is because we believe God actually can change your life. We don't believe that you just believe in Jesus and you remain a sinner. We believe that when you put your faith in Jesus, he makes you a new creation and by his spirit, he continues to transform your life and he actually makes you different. You can actually have victory in your life. You don't to keep living in sin. You can live a holy, righteous life by the power of God at work in you. So I want to invite all of us as we think about being a discipling community to be disciples. I want us to be a community with incredible depth. We don't, have to, we don't have to decide, do we want to reach out and win the world or do we want to be a deep community maturing in our faith? We don't have to choose. We can do both of those things. In fact, I think that's the way God intends it. So I want to invite all of us, let's together commit to be a deep community 
Let's not ever be satisfied with where we have grown to. Let's keep growing in our faith. Let's keep pressing on so that we can attain the prize for which Jesus has called us heavenward. So we need to be disciples. But that's not the only part of Jesus' call, is it? Come follow me. That's the call to be a disciple. But then he says, and I will make you into fishers of men. I will make you uh, into fishers of people. So you have to be a disciple, but you're also called to make disciples. And you don't have to choose. You don't get to say, like, I just want to be a disciple. That sounds more fun to me. Or I just want to make disciples. No, we are called by Jesus to do both. That's what it means to be a discipling community. Not just that we are becoming disciples, but that we are making disciples. The focus here is on mission. If you are a true disciple, you will be engaged in mission. And if you're not engaged in mission, you might be a Christian, but you're probably not a disciple. Because if you've been walking with Jesus, if you're following Jesus, this is the promise of Jesus. I will make you into fishers of people. Right? So we don't get to pick and choose. We, we're supposed to do it all. Follow Jesus and fish for people. So I want to just encourage you, as we think about being a discipling community, let's not just focus on our own spiritual growth, because it's not just about the work that God wants to do in you for you. It's about the work that God wants to do in you for others. This is what it means to really be a disciple. That we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to help other people follow Jesus. Because that's what Jesus invited us into when he called us to be his disciples. When Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5, between new creation and righteousness of God, the only thing Paul talks about is our mission. Right? If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, and that person's becoming the righteousness of God, but in between, you are Christ's ambassadors. You've been given the message and the ministry of reconciliation. It's as if God is making his appeal to you. Right? He's using you to send out his message and invite people to be reconciled to the Father. Our job to be disciples and to make disciples. So how do we go about doing that? Well, last week we talked about those four words, right? I just want to remind you of them because I think they're really helpful for us. Identify who are the people in your relational network who need to come to know who Jesus is. Just write their names down. On an index card, a post-it note, put it on the bathroom mirror. Just identify who those people are. Secondly, intercede. Spend some time praying for the people on that list. Ask God to work in their lives. Before you ever go talk to your friends about God, make sure you're talking to God about your friends. Intercede. Third, invest. Build the relationship. Serve them. Hang out with them. Uh, talk to them. Listen to them. Share with them. Do life with them. Invest in the relationship. And then invite them. Not just invite them to church, though. You might choose to do that. I want to encourage you, though, to share your story. How has Jesus changed your life? How is Jesus changing your life? And then after you've shared that, invite them. Invite them to consider Jesus. Invite them to follow Jesus. And if we all do this, if we all do this, not only will we continue to grow as disciples, but we'll make disciples. 
And listen, maybe you already know this, but I want to just remind you, we live in a community full of people who need to follow Jesus. I mean, I know sometimes in the Midwest we kind of feel like we're sheltered or maybe we live in the Bible Belt or everybody's a Christian. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Right? We know, we know that the overwhelming majority of our community are not Christians. We know in the state of Indiana alone that three million Hoosiers don't claim any religion at all. They're not Christians. They're not anything. Right here where we live, we got work to do. We got work to do. We need to be disciples and we need disciples. Now, in Mark chapter 1, right at the end of the passage that was read, we come to a moment of decision. Because Jesus invites these fishermen on the seashore to follow him so he can make them into fishers of people. But then they have a decision to make. Are they going to leave their nets? Are they going to leave their father's fishing business behind and follow Jesus? Or are they going to stay and just keep doing what they've been doing? Because they got to decide. they got to make a commitment. The same is true for you this morning. We don't get to hear the words of Jesus and then, uh, and then not do anything about it. we got to decide. And deciding not to decide is in itself a decision. You might have to think about that throughout the day, but eventually it'll make sense to you. You can't just say, well, I'm not going to decide because by not deciding, you're deciding not to follow Jesus. Right? And if you're not ready to follow Jesus, I don't want you to follow him. Right? Jesus himself in one place taught uh, that if you're going to build a building, you would first count the cost to make sure you could finish it. And you wouldn't go out to war unless you knew you could win the battle. And when Jesus was giving those two analogies, it was in the context of discipleship. He was basically saying to people, hey, before you jump into this life, you better make sure you understand what it demands of you. Because it's not for the faint of heart. Right? I think in the, in the church, especially in the evangelical church in North America, we have taken the gospel over the years and we just keep making it easier and easier and easier for people. And so the bar is really, really low for what it means to accept Jesus. And then when people accept Jesus and they don't feel like they're a Christian, we try to convince them that they really are because we want more people in. And the reality is, is that Jesus never did that. Jesus said, no, this is a lifelong commitment and it demands every part of your being. If you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Right? This is a high bar, which is why when Jesus tells the rich young ruler, well, you've got to sell everything you have and go give it to the poor. And the rich young ruler walks away sad. Jesus doesn't say, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, come back, come back. Let me, let me change that. No, Jesus lets him go. Why? Because Jesus only wants people who are in. Not just because you get to go to heaven, but because you want to follow Jesus. So we come at this moment in the service, and in the last couple of minutes we got here, just to say this is a moment of decision. And two groups of people I want to talk to this morning, and, and I want you to... Uh, Actually, just close your eyes and bow your head. I know it's kind of what we do in church, but I really just want you to think for a moment without the distraction of looking around this room. 
I just want you in this moment, if you are here and you've never, ever, ever in your life made a decision to follow Jesus, and, and this morning you just say, you know what, I am actually in, I'm ready. Now, if you're not you don't make this decision, but if you are ready today to, to say, you know what, I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. I want to be a disciple, and I want Jesus to make me into a person who makes disciples. And if you're here this morning, and that's you, all I want you to do is just raise your hand, and I'm going to pray for you. Anybody in this room that says, you know, I want to be creation today, just raise your hand. Is there anybody here who would do that? Okay, the second group of people that I want to talk to this morning are those of you who are Christians, but you're not yet disciples. You, you believed in Jesus. You, your sins are forgiven. And, and if you died today, you know you'd go to heaven. But you haven't really fixed your eyes on Jesus in an attempt and in an effort to become like him. And today, you just realize, I want to be a disciple. I don't want to just be a Christian anymore. I want to be a disciple. And I want to be used by God to make disciples. I want to be and I want to make. If that's you, I just want you to raise your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. I just want to see so I can pray for you. Anybody here who's like, I want to sign up for that life. Because I've not been living that way as a Christian. Yep, I see that hand. Yep, yep. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yep, I see that hand. This is a moment of decision. Yep, I see that hand. Yep. Yep. God, you see hands all across this room. And God, we're thankful, um, not for raised hands, but for the work that you are doing in people's hearts and lives right now. God, would you help us be disciples? <laughs> Help us fix our eyes on Jesus. Imitate him, follow him, become like him. And please, Lord, send us out as your ambassadors to make disciples of others. God, for those who have raised their hands, would you just do the work that they are asking you to do right now, do that work in their hearts and lives, and do it in such a way that only you can have the honor and the glory for it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.